0: Down The Rock is brought to you by The Score Bet. That's right, we brought you the best sports media app. And now we're bringing you the best sports book. The Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sports book experience with both pre-game and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into The Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. So take advantage of exciting promotions and odds boosts all season long. Download now on iOS and Android available in colorado indiana iowa and new jersey must be 21 plus if you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help contact 1-800-522-4700 in colorado 1-800 bets off in iowa 1-800-9-with-it in indiana and 1-800-gambler in new jersey visit thescore.bet for more details <laughs> Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Score's NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo and still not joined by usual fellow co-host Joe Walfon. He'll be back in a couple weeks. I will be joined by a guest a little later in the show, Chico Nashon, who works for the Score, writes um, basketball, NBA, and college for us. He just wrote a great piece on Chet Holmgren, uh, the Gonzaga big man that you know most likely will go number one in the NBA draft come June worst case probably falls to like three so we're going to talk to chico about chad holmgren and the piece he wrote about him for a few minutes before then i'm going to hit on a few pieces of news uh from around the association so first one couple injuries to steph curry and john collins steph sprained his right foot and he's out indefinitely he should be back for the playoffs but it is definitely concerning look say what you will about um how long him and Draymond and Klay Thompson been together and how they should know how to play together. And, and obviously they do know how to play together, but like, you still want to get some reps in before the playoffs with your full team. I don't care if you've played 10 years together or 10 games, like you want to get some reps in. And when you look at the, the Warriors, big three, they've played one full game together this season. They've played one full game together in the last like 33 months. Draymond only, started and played a few seconds just for clay's return game so they didn't play a full game together there obviously and then steph got hurt in draymond's second game back after he had missed a bunch of time with that back issue so again in terms of like a full game these guys have played together once in the last 33 months um draymond's also been coming off the bench his first couple games back so all three haven't started and finished a game together since Game five of the twenty nineteen finals, the game before Clay got hurt, obviously, and left a late third quarter. So again, the chemistry is obviously there. It's not like you're worried about whether these guys know how to play together, especially in the case of Steph and Draymond. You can put them together out of nowhere and and they're gonna run that pick and roll to perfection. Draymond's gonna attack guys on the short roll and, and figure out what to do with the four on three situations. He's gonna open up more space for for Steph uh and his shooting. So I don't think it's a like a grave concern for them this season, or that it's going to completely derail them. But it is concerning, and especially because like I, I don't know, they're saying Steph should be back for the playoffs. What kind? Like, is he going to be 100? But is he going to get back? You know, uh literally four game one of the playoffs and need a couple games to play his way into shape. Not even shape, but play his way into kind of game form again. We're talking about a sprained foot here. It's not like a hand or upper body injury where. You know, you're not as concerned with mobility or or re-injury once he gets back or things like that. Like there's going to be a bit of concern there. Obviously, if he comes back with like a couple of weeks before the playoffs, it's a different story. But I mean, a couple of weeks before the playoffs is pretty damn soon. We're already less than a month away from the end of the regular season. So I don't know. Concerning there. In terms of seeding, I think what it means is that the Grizzlies should basically have the second seed locked up. Um, They're only one up on the Warriors in the standings, but you know, not having Steph for the foreseeable future. Grizzlies also four and a half clear of the Jazz and Mavs with only 12 games left. So I think the Grizzlies are pretty much going to be locked into the two seed now, which is at this point, we're just used to the Grizzlies being this good this season. But still kind of crazy to think about, Um, even if you were a bit higher on the Grizzlies than some others coming into the season. I don't know who saw them as a 55 plus win uh, two seed in this conference. Now, the interesting thing could be if Utah has a chance to catch Golden State. Well, I guess Utah or Dallas, because they're tied in the standings. But if they have a chance to catch Golden State, uh, the Jazz are three and a half back, three in the last column. And they still have a game left against the Warriors. But they also have a six-game road trip coming up. Uh, they maybe need to be more concerned with Dallas overtaking them for fourth than uh, thinking about overtaking the Warriors right now. But look, it, it is something. The Warriors maybe aren't as bad without Steph on the court as they have been in, in some years previously but they are still losing minutes without him obviously so they're going to be hard pressed every night they take the floor without him to win games and and teams like utah and dallas behind them at least have a shot to catch him i'd say it's unlikely but they have a shot still though you, you look at the the Warriors' schedule it's not too tough i'd bet on them staying in the three seed and then at that point really i think what they're going to be hoping for is that the nuggets get out of the six because that's a bad matchup for the warriors if i were them i don't want any part of Jokic's nuggets I just think that's a bad matchup, but they get Jamal Murray back. Obviously, even more concerning. Um, that's not your typical six seed. In the East, John Collins is out indefinitely uh, due to a plantar fascia tear on his right foot, and he also has an injured right ring finger. The Hawks, I mean, I'm, I'm basically giving up on them. This season. I, You know, I was high on them last year before they got rolling. I came into this season thinking that they could build on that and that they could, you know, approach legit contention if they stayed healthy and stuff. Health has played a part of it, but they also just haven't been as good defensively. They've been compared to last year at their best, a a train wreck. I've talked about, you know, DeAndre Hunter being back now and even positive strides from Munyeka Okongwu and how there is a defensive ceiling there that maybe we just can't see right now, but now Collins is out indefinitely. They're going to make the plan. They're four and a half clear of the wizards. Uh, Trey's playing out of his mind, even for his standards right now. So they should be pretty secure in the plan. in and I, I mean, they can still leapfrog Charlotte for ninth, even without Collins, I guess. Technically, they're still within range of the Nets. I think they're only a couple of games back. But even me as a, as a pretty big believer in this team and a believer in this team's ability to figure it out at some point this season, I had already lost a lot of faith. And I feel like Collins being out indefinitely now kind of seals it for me. I don't have much faith in this team going to Brooklyn or Toronto and beating one of those teams if they were, you know, even win the 9-10 play in to then... Play for the eight seeds, even without Kyrie. I, I'm not taking the Hawks over the net, over a KD led Nets team. Um, I, I think they can beat the Raptors, but I wouldn't pick them to win in Toronto. And then, I mean, the Raptors, I think, are going to move up if you look at the way the schedule breaks, even the way the Bulls schedule. Like the Bulls might fall out of the playoffs proper and into the play in. The Cavs could, and even if one of those teams is sliding. I still would take one of those teams at home if it came down to a one game play in against the Hawks for the right to go to the playoffs or go home. So I I just think the Hawks that this is maybe the final nail in their coffin of what's been just a, a really disappointing season for them after the surprise Eastern Conference finals one last year. Last thing I wanted to get to the Wolves absolutely embarrassing the Lakers, I'm sure anyone who listens to this podcast and is into the NBA enough, if they didn't watch the game, they've at least seen the clips on social media somewhere now. The Wolves were basically bullying the Lakers, okay? Carl Anthony and Patrick Beverly were especially disrespectful to Russell Westbrook. And I'm not saying that in like a way where it's like they shouldn't have done it. It's a fair game. They, they didn't cross any personal lines or anything like that. They very much mocked the fact that he can't shoot and was shooting air balls. Towns had that moment after a Westbrook corner three air ball where, you know, he insinuated that someone left a window open in the arena in Minnesota. Beverly, like 10 seconds later while talking to the ref was kind of mimicking that he had to move out of the way of the air ball and hide from it. The way Al Horford does on free throw. Sometimes when a free throw hits rim, there was a sequence where I don't even remember what had happened at that point and And Pat Beverly was like flexing 20 feet from LeBron and then he actually walked up to LeBron and tapped him on the butt. And LeBron just kind of had to sit there with his hands on his knees, not really being able to say anything because his team was getting embarrassed again. The one thing I will say, I guess, credit to LeBron and Westbrook. Well, Westbrook took exception after the game. He said he wasn't going to take exception, but then he also you know, made the reference to the fact that the Wolves have a bunch of guys that haven't done anything. So he's not going to pay it no mind. LeBron at least actually did say it's part of the game when it came to the wolves talking trash so in that sense i'll give them some credit because they they don't have a right to be upset like they they handled it the right way after the game in not kind of firing back at them because they don't have a right to and this is something i tweeted as well look you can go back at the best and most you know fun having lebron led teams in his career they clowned teams and clowned dudes plenty while they were blowing them out lebron did it to dudes in the playoffs okay just ask the raptors like westbrook you know, how long's he been rocking the baby uh, when he thinks a guy can't guard him or a guy's too small or too weak, whatever the case may be. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying those guys, you know, that he shouldn't have been doing that or LeBron and, and his teammates shouldn't have been having fun in the past. As LeBron said, it's all part of the game. It is part of the game to trash talk, to have fun with your opponents when you're beating their asses, as long as no personal lines are being crossed, obviously. So Russ and LeBron, I mean, they, they've spent a good chunk of their careers giving it now it's time to take it when it comes to the trash talk and the disrespect and whatever and the Lakers season just can't end soon enough I know they should eventually get AD back I know obviously like no one wants to have to play a one game play in against LeBron James Anthony Davis the team and even even though they've lost the minutes with both those guys in the court this season you know like top teams in the west still don't want to have to play those guys in the playoffs as it came to that but it, this team just needs to be put out of their misery for this season. Every night, LeBron is just looking sick. You know, he he can't skirt all the blame, obviously. He's not exactly defending. And, and as we've mentioned countless times, this Lakers roster has to at least partly be on him. I fail to believe that he had nothing to do with this roster construction. I think Chris Haynes said on a Twitter Spaces this week that DeMar DeRozan was the Lakers' first choice in the offseason, but they didn't want to give him a third year. Uh, and sorry, that DeMar DeRozan was LeBron's first choice, but the Lakers didn't want to give DeRozan a third year and, and whatever. I mean, that may be true. Chris obviously very plugged in. I do wonder how much of this now is LeBron maybe getting sick of these Lugium comments that are out there and people tearing down Le GM and and him putting this team together and him preferring Westbrook and him wanting to maybe get ahead of it and, and not while people thinking that again, who knows what's true and what's not, not saying LeBron had everything to do with putting this roster together but again i fail to believe he didn't have at least a hand in it if not two hands in it so while i understand his frustration with how bad the team is around him he's gonna wear some of the blame both in terms of why the supporting cast looks the way it does and in terms of again he's not exactly defending out there or playing absolutely balls to the wall still a great player and insane what he's doing at this age but he can't completely skirt the blame. All that said, still, have, have watching LeBron just look as sick and frustrated as he is every night, having Westbrook just being trolled by every team uh, and fan base that matches up with the, the Lakers this season is... It's funny, but it's also getting kind of sad. I, I mean, in terms of the other stuff with Westbrook, obviously, and the people that have been saying anything disparaging to his family or anything disparaging about his family... like any people threatening him and his family, those people are absolute ass clowns and there's obviously, obviously no room for that in the game. That's not trash talk. That's not having fun as a fan. That's that's beyond that. The West Brick stuff, on one hand, I kind of get it where it's like you could make the argument once you get into like making fun of people's names and whatever that it, it could be crossing a line, but I don't know, man. Like a fan turning Westbrook into West Brick, like... I get what Russ was saying, where that like it's a family thing, because then at school his son is being called Westbrook. And I, and I get that. Like that, obviously as a parent, you don't want that, but I just the the other stuff with his family and the threats and the disparaging comments are one thing. I'm not sure I can get to a point where I'm chastising fans for turning Westbrook into Westbrook. Like that's a pretty that's a pretty mild <laughs> fan taunt other than the fact it involves a name. Like, I don't know. Are we going to say anytime something involves a name, it's out of bounds. Uh, is it only if it's a last name? Cause it's like the family name, I suppose. Like, I I don't know. It, I can see both sides to the argument when it comes to the West Brick thing, but it's pretty mild and tame. And if we're going to get to the point where a fan using a guy's last name to tease the fact that he can't shoot is out of bounds for fans to say. I think that becomes a slippery slope where it's like, all right, like, fans are still allowed to have some fun. Again, as long as we're not crossing certain lines. I just have a hard time believing that Westbrook into Westbrook is crossing one of those lines. Anyway, the fact that these are the conversations we're having about the Lakers this season is... uh, It's telling of what this season has become. Like I said, they they just need to mercifully be put out of their misery. I need to be put out of my one-man show misery here. I think... I've gone on long enough on this Pound the Rock soliloquy. I'm going to go to break. I'm going to come back with Chico Nash on. We're going to talk Chet Holmgren. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's fantasy football podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, we don't usually talk college ball on Pound the Rock, but I feel like we have to today and I'll, I'll explain why. For one, I mean, unless you've been living under a rock when it comes to college basketball, I feel like even... NBA observers that don't watch, watch much college ball should know about Gonzaga's 7-foot Chet Holmgren. 7-footer, seven 7-foot-6 seven wingspan, but with guard skills. Um, has been pretty much all year widely projected to be a top three pick along with Duke's Paulo Banquero and Auburn's Jabari Smith. But I do think uh, Holmgren will be a pretty clear-cut number one by the time the draft rolls around. And someone who I think will agree with that is one of the score's basketball writers. His name's Chico Nishan. And Chico, the reason I wanted to have him on today is because uh, he just wrote an amazing piece called How Chet Holmgren Became the Most Unique NBA Prospect in Recent Memory. So Chico, welcome to the show. Great piece. Thanks for coming on. And yeah, I want to talk a little bit about Chet Holmgren. I also want any of our Filipino listeners to know that Chico is the world's foremost expert on filipino ballers if there is a hu- if there is someone on planet earth that whether they are filipino whether they have a connection to the philippines if they are in all at all eligible to play for the filipino national basketball team chico knows about them
1: thanks for having me man. That, that's quite the intro i don't know <laughs> how if i can uh live up to that after all that but <laughs> yeah. uh appreciate you having me on and if there's any sort of filipino basketball player i will definitely know. And Uh, speaking of you know there are two in the tournament right now with uh, remy martin on kansas and boogie ellis on usc who are both playing pretty big roles for those teams so um definitely keep an eye out for those two for sure
0: is remy anything close to an nba prospect or no
1: um he was actually the preseason big 12 player of the year so um there was a possibility that if he had a good season he'd be you know right in the conversation be a second round pick but He's had injuries, he's been out of the rotation, but now he's back in uh, Bill Sell's graces and has played a big role in the uh, the Big 12 tournament run. And uh, last night, he was a huge part that spark off the bench for Kansas in their opening uh, round win.
0: Yeah, I, I was hoping uh, Remy was, was an NBA prospect because I want someone named Remy Martin in, in the NBA. The guy's got the same name as a brand of cognac. Do you know how great that would be? It also opens up some endorsement opportunities for him.
1: All right. Branding
0: rights itself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He should be doing... I mean, the 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 NIL rules are in place now. He, he should be getting money from Remy Martin right now. Uh, <laughs> but no, all right. The reason I brought you on, like I said, you wrote this great piece on Chet Holmgren titled How Chet Holmgren Became the Most Unique NBA Prospect in Recent Memory. That's what I want to talk to you about. Before I get into some of like the finer details and asking you questions, I, I guess the first thing I want to ask you is... You watch college ball really closely. I know that you write about it a lot. So you've been watching Holmgren a lot you know, closer than we have. Did you learn anything while putting this piece together, while talking to people about Chet, whether on the court, off the court, that you didn't know before, good or bad? Did, did you come out of you know writing this piece and talking to people um, with any different perspective on him?
1: I didn't know about his growth sport and having um, physical issues with that. I found that pretty interesting. Um, You know, this is a guy that grew six, seven inches from the start of grade eight to the end of grade eight. And I think we forget, you know, those are big changes for the human body and a big change for an athlete like him having to deal with that at such a young age and having to deal with such a sudden change. You know, it it kind of changes the way you play the game. And um, he had been getting soreness uh, in his legs and his father, um, Dave, actually had knee problems himself. Um, big seven-footer um, didn't play much uh, over his four years at Minnesota because he um, had, you know, was suffering from bad knees. And back then, he didn't have access to physical therapy and things that stuff that we have now. So um, he made it a point to make sure that didn't happen to his son. And during that year, he was having that growth spurt. You know, they got him in physical therapy. It worked on just correcting his posture, maybe changing the way he moved because um, down the line, what he was doing originally might have affected the way he, um, his long-term durability. And so for me, I, you know, you see all the stuff he does on the court, but I thought that was kind of interesting. The fact that already early on, he, you know, he had to go through something major like that.
0: Yeah, no, I, I. I... That was one of the points I was going to ask you about, because I did think that was really interesting. I thought it was interesting that because he had a father, like you said, who was a seven footer who had, you know, okay, maybe it it wasn't a a star studded basketball career, but he played basketball at some decent level. And he had that career cut short by knee issues at his size. I thought it was interesting that he then kind of, uh, I guess, could could see what was coming and now sees his son growing in the same way, probably going to be a seven footer and starts working with him at an early age on, like you said, things like, Movement and um, his core and all that stuff. It's things that I feel like big guys usually would start getting help with maybe later. You know what I mean? When they become big time college prospects, when they become NBA prospects, maybe then they start doing that kind of training. Chet was doing it earlier because his dad could see the writing on the wall when Chet started dealing. I think in your piece you wrote, it was like some knee and shin issues that Holmgren was starting to have. And it, I guess his dad saw it. It's like, oh, I've seen this before because I went through it. So now let's let's work on your body and your movements and all this stuff to make sure that doesn't happen. And then as you mentioned in the piece, that really, since he really hasn't had many issues since then, I think that's an important thing because all, you hear so much with Chet about the slender frame, right? Like, I mean, I, I think it was a ringer piece earlier this year on him where they, there was a line that everyone remembers, like they wrote that um, at the time, Chet Holmgren was 14 inches taller than the shortest NBA player right now, but they're the same weight. And, you know, that's what everyone talks about with Chez. Like, how is this this crazy slender seven foot frame going to hold up? But to your point in the piece, like since he started working on this stuff, he hasn't really had any issues.
1: Yeah. You mentioned probably the biggest concern and a lot of people have always brought up is the slender frame. And, um, you know, obviously at the next level, he's going to have to bulk up. He's going to go through um, strength and conditioning programs with the league and. I think every player you know they go through the nba design programs it's it's going to help them down the line but i think the way you see him compete right now um the way he isn't afraid to you know duel in the post and be physical with different guys um he does have that kind of mean streak in him that i guess you would look at a skinny frame and lanky guy like him you wouldn't think of um judging off that appearance but Um, just in the way that he fights for rebounds and he's willing to put his body in there. I I mean, you see that. Um, One of my favorite parts in the piece is uh, his his high school coach talked about um, watching him when he was younger and just taking an elbow to the face and he's got his lip and his his braces and he just comes out of the game momentarily. He just picks it up and checks right back in immediately. They didn't want to miss any part of the game. That's who he is. He's a competitor and, um, you know, he doesn't care, you know how much of a physical beating he might take. Like he's willing to do whatever it takes uh, to win the game.
0: Another th- thing I liked in the piece that i, I learned because I didn't realize was when you talk about Chet's kind of development from a young age, and you go back and and look at who emphasized the whole positionless thing with him, and it was coach Larry Suggs, Jalen Suggs's dad, um who was coaching uh, the grassroots Sizzle AAU program. I guess in Minnesota it would have been. So one, I didn't realize Jalen Sugg's dad was uh, one of Chet Holmgren's first basketball coaches. And two, I thought it was really interesting that he's the one that, you know, was emphasizing a position, the style of basketball with, with a young group like that. And that, uh, as you wrote in the piece, he allowed Holmgren to bring the ball up the court, play on the perimeter, and he let him run pick and rolls because he could see over top the defense.
1: Yeah, obviously a really unique approach, you know, first thing you would think is especially that age level. He, he was always usually a lot taller than people of his age. Your first instinct is you throw him in the post, you work on the big man skills and you, you go from there. But um, what Larry Suggs and, and his coaching staff wanted to do is play this positional style of basketball where Chet would work with the guards. They would do guard drills, work on their ball handling. Um, but, and he wouldn't pigeonhole them into one position and it didn't matter what, um, you know, if you were a guard, like I, they had you well-rounded the way I, from what I understand the way their program worked. And, you know, they faced criticism from people in the Minnesota basketball community about maybe this isn't the right thing to do for a player like Chet, but um, that was obviously really fundamental in him um, being the player he is today because it opened his his eyes up to the, the all around game, being able to handle the ball and affect the games in other ways than a traditional big man, like, His dad once did.
0: If you watch him play, like you can tell that, I guess other than him, just seemingly like obviously freakishly large in a way, or, or, you know, having these skills that big guys usually don't have, but he looks a lot more just like comfortable with those skills. If that makes sense. As opposed to sometimes when you see kind of prospects that are these big guys that can handle the ball. I don't know how to explain it, but like the, it, it doesn't look as fluid or as comfortable to them as the way it does when Chet, is handling the ball and running the court. And yeah, I do wonder if it's because he started doing that stuff at an earlier age, than I feel like a lot of big guys who become ball handlers do it. And another reason too, is like, I know you mentioned the big growth spurt he had in eighth grade, which caused some physical issues. But, you know, sometimes you hear about guys having these growth spurts much later, you know, like Anthony Davis, I think it was like grade 10, it was a couple years later. And I feel like with Chet, even though he might have you know, had those physical issues early because of this big growth spurt, I feel like eighth grade is early enough for a, an athlete that might eventually go pro that it, it also gives them a lot of time still between, you know, when that spurt happened in college, or when that spurt happened, and when they're going to be an actual pro prospect that it like gives them some time to kind of get familiar and comfortable in this different frame. And and yeah, between that and and as you mentioned, him, you know, basically from third grade, running pick and rolls and handling the ball, he just looks so comfortable doing it. It does not look awkward despite his size. I think that's a testament to all those things.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you look at him just the way he carries the ball off court. He can do it with either hand. Um, it's it's funny when he broke his wrist um, in grade school. He's a right-handed player and he, what he wanted to do is really lock down and focus on his offhand, his left hand. And during that time, he couldn't use his right wrist. He was working on learning how to finish better with his left hand, learning how to handle the ball with his left hand. And, you know, it came to the point where, you know, he comes out of that injury and he's able to use both hands easily well. And then the confidence of uh, him being able to wrap the ball around him and uh, put the ball behind his back and dribble by a defender, um, there's that viral clip I mentioned in the story where um, he did that Steph Curry's own move on him at the very same camp. And uh, the confidence to do it against a player like that, like, I mean, you would probably think he's in, he's in grade 10 at the time, maybe a little nervous playing against Stephen Curry. And he decides, you know what, let's, uh, let's show him a little something here. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's been it's been a really amazing development seeing you know his his growth. He had like two scholarships um, entering his grade ten year in high school, and he had an amazing high school season. The AAU circuit really blew up, and um, that Steph Curry clip where he went viral really kind of put him over the top that summer.
0: Yeah, it's grade 10, seven footer going behind the back against Steph Curry. I think will put a lot of people on the map. Uh, we talked a lot about the offensive side of the ball. The thing I really like about Chet Holmgren is that I'd say unlike a lot of offensive-minded seven-footers, unlike a lot of shooting big men, you know, you get some that can both shoot and protect the rim or play defense, but for the most part, I feel like people, there's a stigma when it comes to like shooting big men or offensively-minded big men that they're not going to be the same type of defensive players, defensive stalwarts, rim protectors that most seven-footers are that's not the case with Chet Holmgren. This guy is a special defensive talent. In addition to all the things we've talked about that make him a unique offensive player as a seven footer with guard skills. Um, You saw it already in in the opener of the tournament. He had seven blocks as part of a a game where he just stuffed the stat sheet, and I, I mean, you wrote uh, there's a part in the story too where his high school coach Lance Johnson talks about how you know, even if when he's like playing aggressive or playing up in pick and rolls and playing up on the perimeter against guards, even if the guard turns a corner and like gets by him, he's so big that I think the quote from Lance Johnson in your story was like, the guard could be like six feet in front of him, and it doesn't matter because. Chet's just so big, he can still block the shot from behind or disrupt it from behind. So what have you seen uh, watching him play D and also talking to people about that defense?
1: Yeah, I think the most impressive thing about him as a shot blocker is his timing. Uh, He always just seems to time that well, and he also likes keeping the ball at play. Um, Obviously, um, if you can block a shot, you're going to try to do so, but his main priority when he tries to block a shot is to also keep the ball in play. And the beauty of a guy like Chad is that if he keeps the ball in play, sometimes he's the guy that ends up with the ball <laughs> on the ensuing possession and he can take it right back up court and run the fast break, whether he's you know carrying the ball off court or launching an outlet pass to the uh, closest guard. Um, that's an amazing weapon to have for just a shot blocker. And then you talked about um, his defense on being on the perimeter. Um, like his coach was telling me, like he could be six feet away from a guy taking a jump shot, but he's got the length to close out and potentially block a shot. If not block it, alter it. Um, if they're taking a shot from the perimeter or if they would get by him, he has that, he can use that length and the speed to, to catch up any guard that gets by him. But he doesn't always let these guards get by him because he moves pretty well. He's got good fluid movement with his hips that he's able to stay in front of them. Um, so if he's put in a pick and roll, which he's going to be put in a lot of those situations in the NBA where he's going to be in drop coverage or switching, um, onto a guard or, you know, they got to the point where they just got really comfortable, um, doing that with him when he was in high school.
0: We've kind of raved about him this whole time, which I get it. You wrote about him. I, I mean, I'm enamored with him. Is there... Other than the frame, because that's like everyone talks about the frame and, and him potentially being too skinny. Is there anything about his game when you watch him or even in doing this story that, that at all gives you doubts about his NBA future? I
1: think the biggest question honestly might be the fit, like where he ends up in the draft. Because I think if you end up in a situation where he's going to be forced to play a lot of center earlier on, um, that could be a little bit of trouble uh, if he's going to have to go up against a Jokic or you know an Embiid um, as part of his duties as a rookie, starting early on. I think ideally you'd like to see him. He, he, I think what his perfect spot would be as a as a four right now, as a stretch four even. Um, if you pair him alongside a center that could you know be able to handle those bruising bigs, and then when the center has to sit, he slides up and plays maybe fifteen to twenty percent of his minutes at the five. Um, I mean, you're kind of seeing that with Evan Mobley and Jared Allen, which I think is kind of a good example. I, I think Mobley is probably more athletic than, uh, than Chet, but I think a situation like that's ideal where you have, you take an advantage of, in Mobley's case and Chet's case, their versatility, be able to guard in the perimeter and have Allen um, kind of deal with the more physical bigs. Um, I think for me, that's the biggest question uh, for me surrounding his game um besides obviously the the questions about his frame
0: right uh, you mentioned um being maybe like a stretch four or something whether it's at the 4 or 5 just so people know the stretchability here like he, he, i think he went over two from deep in the first game of the tournament but as you wrote in the story he came into the tournament shooting better than 41% from deep on more than 3 triples per game and not just doing it from the corners like he's he's drilling pull up threes he's um above the break in transition, also catch and shoot from the court. Like he he is a shooter. Like he can shoot. So definitely has that stretch ability. I'm at the point where obviously yes, there are concerns. But I'm at the point where when I watch Bunkero and Smith, even though Bunkero is a Pison, okay, I can't just I can't just stand for him I was waiting for this. irresponsibly. Uh if if it's not warranted. I think he's gonna be good, but like when I watch him, when I watch Smith and and I you know Smith has some really exciting athletic tools too but I just can't bring myself to consider any of those guys on the same level as Chet Holmgren. And again, I'm admitting that I'm coming from a position of being, you know, like the NBA guy who will tune in to a college game maybe, maybe once a week, if that. And that's a big maybe. And that's literally only to like check in on an NBA prospect. So for my limited action, reading about it and watching clips and stuff, I can't imagine anyone taking Bunkero or Smith over Chet Holmgren. Can you?
1: It's hard because the way he just affects the game in so many different yeah. ways. Um, I mean, you can have concerns about his his physicality, but I mean, does that kind of outweigh all the different other stuff he does on the floor? Like at worst case, you're getting a stretch for, you know, a big that's a mismatch for other players with his ability to stretch the floor. Um, Jabari Smith and Paolo Brancaro, I also think are going to be really solid players, um, but it's. I think it's just really hard if you're. I don't know if you're the Pistons or the Magic, especially with the Magic and you have the potential reunion with, with Jalen Suggs. Yeah. Number one, like I don't know how you tell Jalen Suggs that like we're gonna take somebody else instead of Chat. Like they're gonna definitely use Jalen Suggs and, and you know ask him everything he knows and use him as a you know advice to uh, get the insight goods on him. But uh, it's hard. I mean, it's gonna take a special performance from from both of them and the NCAA tournament to even make that a conversation. I would say maybe Jabari Smith might be able to push the, uh, the envelope regarding that. But I mean, if uh, especially if Gonzaga goes on a deep run here, I don't know how you can pass on Chad a number one right now.
0: No, I agree with you, man. I really liked how even in the opener of the tournament, like obviously we talked all about the offensive ball skills again, but I like the like I think with the 4 minutes left in the game he had only used 12 individual possessions by that point. Now again then Gonzaga started pulling away and the numbers started coming up but like he had only used 12 possessions. He was scoring efficiently, but he wasn't really dominating the ball and yet he was by far the most dominant player on the court without needing to dominate the ball but he can also dominate the ball. I just think there's so much there at his size. I also think it's really interesting because if you look at um, next year's draft when the French big, Victor Wembignana, who is similar to Chet, but maybe even on a higher level when it comes to being a a seven foot two guy with the on-ball skills and all that. I think it's really interesting that the league for so long started moving away from bigs and they moved away from traditional bigs, obviously. Now, Embiid and Jokic are dominating the discussion this year. Embiid is, I think, closer to a traditional big, but he's still a guy that can you know, put it on the floor, hit step backs, whatever. Jokic is anything but traditional despite his size. And then obviously you've got Holmgren and then Wembenjana coming. I just, I think it's interesting that the league went smaller and away from traditional bigs. And over time, it's like these young bigs, they found their own niche and it was just basically being, well, what if we just got guard skills, but still had seven foot size because the basket is still 10 feet in the air. Like I, I find that interesting. And it's like this new wave of bigs coming now where, They they aren't traditional, so they're not part of that group of bigs. You know, years ago, that kind of got lost in the in the weeds in the NBA. But they actually now fit the guard dominated or perimeter dominated game. So I think that's an interesting thing to kind of consider over the next few years and monitor.
1: Yeah, even going back to like Giannis, I mean, this is a guy that grew into his who he was today, right? You might even argue putting him in that conversation. Yeah, like the first guy, raw big. Um, but yeah, when Bayama, the, the Frenchman and uh, Chet, they actually played uh, against one another in the FIBA uh, under-19 World Cup last summer. Um, the Frenchman actually got the better of uh, of Holmgren in that game. Holmgren was the MVP of the tournament, but uh, when Bayama really played, it was a fascinating to kind of see these guys go yeah. cool at it because they're identical, basically identical players except separated by age and a couple inches <laughs> with uh Wenby Yama being a little bit taller. But it's going to be fascinating to see if uh, – obviously, I think Chet's success or if he would, it has success at the next level in his rookie year is going to play into, uh, I guess, a lot of people's decision-making going forward for front offices when they view uh Wenbayama in next year's
0: draft. 100%. I agree. All right, then Chico, I'm gonna let you uh, get back to your work there at the office because I know it's a full day of March Madness going on still in the first round. So uh, let you get back to that. Thanks, man, for for joining us and uh, great job again on the piece.
1: No worries, man. Always a pleasure.
0: All right, thank you again to Chico. I encourage everyone listening to go check out his piece on Chet Holmgren. Fan shout out this week goes out to Georgia Brooks in LA, originally from Milton, Ontario. One congratulations to Georgia. She is a new mom. Just had a baby boy named Max in the last couple of months. George hit me up on Instagram uh, last month, actually, to say, my newborn is going to be a basketball expert because of all the episodes of Pound the Rock we listen to in the middle of the night. That made my day reading that. Uh, I'm sure Wolf on hearing this as, you know, a new dad himself uh, is probably loving that message as well. <laughs> George also uh, joked that Max is a huge fan of the show already and that his hands are big, maybe the next Kawhi. Georgia, thank you so much for supporting the show. Thank you for listening. <laughs> thank you for continuing to listen while you're home and recovering from uh, giving birth to Max. And thank you for ensuring uh, Max is getting an early start on being a Pound the Rock fan. Usual call out for everyone out there listening. We want to shout you out because we appreciate you supporting the show. So whether you're listening for the first time or the 230th time, hit me up on social media, at at the score.com on email, Twitter at Joseph Cacharo, Instagram, Joe underscore, underscore, underscore cash. Let me know how long you've been listening, where you're listening from, what you like about the show, maybe what you don't, and we'll make sure to get you a shout out on a future episode. We got two of these left without Wolf on already have a guest book for next week that I think everyone will enjoy. Got to fill one week after that. And then after that, Wolfon's back and, uh, and we'll really get into the swing of things and the playoffs will be here and whatever. But uh, keep reaching out and we'll keep the shout outs coming. So thanks again to Georgia. Thanks again to Chico for joining us. For an absent Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.